trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. This is a program that's all about owning your worldview. In other words, thinking as clearly and independently as you can about what's going on around you. Our sponsors include GovernYourCrypto.com, the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage, LifesavingFood.com, MonticelloCollege.org, SewingAndQuiltingCenter.com, HSLAmmo.com, and Dixie Chiropractic. Hey, it's uh, it's the day when I visit with my friend Eric Peters. And Eric, I feel like we ought to be taking a couple of victory laps because we have some good news to talk about. Yeah, we've got some great news. Uh, it looks like a big victory in the diaper war. The diapers have come off, uh, at least as regards uh, airplanes and other forms of government-controlled transportation. As you know, a federal judge struck the uh, the mandate down at last. So two years into this thing, you can fly again, at least for now, uh, without having to put on the loathsome rag. You know, I've watched a number of different videos taken by passengers on board flights as that announcement was made. And it was pretty encouraging to see not only the flight attendants ripping off their masks, but, you know, in some cases going down the aisles, collecting other people's masks, you know, throw them away. Go yep. ahead. Let's get rid of them. Uh, there were a lot of yep. people happy to see this. Now, you pointed out to me before we went on the air, the only downside of such a thing is that people were so ready to submit in the first place. Yeah, to me, that's, you know, that's, the, uh, that's the dark cloud to the silver lining, if you will in that uh, people just passively waited until they were told by an authority figure, okay, now you can take off your mask. Uh, and the flip side of that coin was, you know, they were perfectly content to submissively put it on as they were told to put it on by authority figures. And I think we won't recover America again until people say no, just because some authority figure tells me to do something <laughs> when it's not even a law. I'm not doing it because I'm an independent thinking human being and I'm going to exercise my own judgment and I'm not just going to, uh, march in lockstep and, and, and click my heels and do whatever I'm told. Right. Now, I don't want to sound petty, but Eric, I do I do find a small amount of satisfaction in watching the people of a controlling nature having a mild freak out that they can no longer force other people to do their bidding. Oh, absolutely. I, I think we're going to see some very interesting spectacles now uh, on air travel, just just as we saw before when the hysterical diaper people would, would uh, approach and hector and sometimes even attack people at stores and so on, if they weren't wearing the holy rag. Now they're going to screech, oh, they're putting my life at risk because they're taking off their mask on the airplane. It's going to be very interesting to see how this all fleshes out. My hope is that uh, the majority will take off the stupid mask and the minority of the pathologically uh, afflicted, the hypochondriacs out there, uh, will once again realize they're mentally ill, or at least the rest of us will, and maybe they'll go get therapy and we can get back to normal again. I actually saw someone had posted this on Twitter earlier today. Um, a guy had written a satirical uh, letter to to the head to the uh, <clears throat> president of a of a airline, saying something about we booked our flight, and then in mid flight they removed the mask mandate, and he's just like for endangering my child's health and the emotional trauma that went with this. I want to know where I can file a lawsuit. And the New York Times, through one of its reporters, reached out to him looking for further comment. And he and he basically responded, telling him, "Hey, I I got to admit, 
I, I knew I was doing a pretty good job of satire, but he goes, could you guys train me how to tell even more effective lies? <laughs> oh, my God, that's, that's too hysterical. I think he, if only he had played it up and let them run a story. And then after the thing had gone in print, had, had, had come out and said, hey, the, the joke's on you, buddy. You know, Glenn Greenwald, who I think is one of the very few people out there who still deserves the moniker journalist, uh, yeah. made, made a very clear distinction. Some of the people freaking out were like, well, try explaining to your friends in other liberal democracies that a single, unelected, life-tenured, 35-year-old judge just abolished the air travel mask mandate for the entire country. No peer nation would tolerate such a power-drunk juristocracy. Our system is badly broken. <laughs> and Glenn Greenwald says, look, it was a legal not a health policy question. And the way our system works is in such cases is that they get decided in the first instance by a Senate-confirmed federal judge, then an appellate court, then SCOTUS if they accept. But he says since liberals don't like the outcome, well, they depict it as abnormal. Well, sure. Wait a minute now. How about the how old is he, 70-year-old unelected bureaucrat who, <laughs> who simply decreed Fauci and these other people? They've never been elected to anything. Right. And somehow that's okay. You know, and it just shows the cognitive dissonance of the left. Again, you and I have talked about repeatedly that when they like something, they're all for it, regardless of the principle at issue behind it. But when that same principle is applied to something they don't like, then all of a sudden they get principle and they rise up in great uh, outrage and dudgeon and, and complain about it. And it's really funny to observe it. And it's always been the case, but it's become so blatantly apparent now, I think, and this is good. People are beginning to see it for what it is, that these people don't have any principles other than power and control. That's what they want ultimately is power and control and whatever mechanism or means they can deploy to get that, it's perfectly fine. I'm very curious if this is going to help crack the door open a little bit wider to actually holding accountable some of these authorities and and public health officials who pushed lockdowns and, and all the other onerous mandates, the vax mandates on us. What do you think? Well, I think that the public, not all of it, but I think there is a large portion of the public that is desperate for that to happen and understands the necessity of that happening. If we're ever going to recover any semblance of constitutional government in this country uh, defined by the rule of law and holding people accountable when they act in a way that's reckless or criminal, and that's the case here. The problem is, you know, we as individuals are kind of atomized and don't individually have much power to see that happen. So what's necessary is there is some sort of a catalyzing figure who's in a position to do something about it. Now, I'm the farthest from the person uh, who looks to politicians for uh, salvation. I think you and I talked about that last time. However, I'd like to see somebody like DeSantis come forward who is articulate and is in a position to do something about it, to, to call for that and catalyze a movement that will ultimately demand it and become irresistible and, and such that it will have to happen in order for uh, the government to have any legitimacy going forward. Amen. It's I, I believe I read something that uh, there nevertheless in May is going to be some kind of a COVID-19 summit convened by the United States that uh, has as part of its stated goal to, to explore ways to get the whole wide world vaccinated. So it's not like we, we, we can accept yeah. this victory, but this is not a time to, to go back to sleep because the, the danger still remains. Yeah, they're never going to let this go, and the only way we can make them let it go is to get across the principle that this idea that the presumption of sickness, this mere assertion of sickness, which really is a way of saying this assertion of anything, that something might happen, in other words. You know, that they, the left has been using this for all of our lives for you know, the past 50-plus years, this idea that, well, if, if we don't pass a law, if we don't restrict people in this manner, then this might happen. 
you know, I've, I've written about this extensively over the years with regard to things like this drunk driving checkpoints. If we don't force everybody to stop and, and provide their papers and submit to an inspection, well, dangerous drunks will be on the loose, you know? Oh, yeah. They've used that that idea uh, over and over, and this is just the latest example of it. It's not an isolated thing, uh, and it's important to connect the dots and understand that it couldn't have happened if Americans haven't did not accept and weren't conditioned to accept this idea of presumptive guilt, which runs completely contrary to everything that this country was once upon a time supposed to be all about, which was the presumption of innocence, that you had to be specifically accused of something, and then they, the accusers, had to actually establish that you had done something in order for them to uh, to punish you or, or to restrict you in some manner. And we've gotten away from that in the past 50 years, and it's really important that we do a hard parking break 180 to get back to that. Well, my deepest respect remains reserved for individuals like yourself who from the very beginning uh, were, you know, against the masks and, and saw them for what they were, symbols of compliance. I mean, I'm happy that there are other people who are getting on board now, now that it's safe, mm-hmm. you know, to speak up. But uh, kudos to the folks who spoke out when it was risky and who refused to compromise when it was risky and, and confrontational to do so. Well, yeah, exactly. And we've all got to just recover uh, our outrage at being accused of something that we haven't done and this idea that we should sort of slump our shoulders and submit uh, because we feel guilty about somebody else feeling that we might have done something, you know, whether it's drunk driving, whether it's speeding, any of that, whether it's masking. Look, man, I didn't do it. I haven't caused any harm. So bugger off, you know, mm-hmm. straighten up your back, pull your shoulders back and don't put up with it. Say no. We have got to do a hard no to all of this stuff on a very principled level going forward or we're going to get more of it in the future. Amen. Now, we're coming up on our break, but Eric, when we come back, uh, I want to talk gas prices with you. I know this yep. is this is going to be kind of a raw wound for a lot of people, but uh, you had a great article last week about uh, corn, corn pop. pop. <laughs> <laughs> you know where this is going, don't you? Yeah, I do. All right. So, uh, yeah, more more corn in our gasoline. That's, uh, that's something that the president's going to be working on. Uh, mm-hmm. Again, we're talking with Eric Peters from ericpetersautos.com. I have a link to his website, and I'm going to encourage you, click on it. You'll find all kinds of interesting articles. Uh, in fact, don't just read the articles. Take the time to, uh, to peruse the comments. He has a really smart uh, reading audience, a lot of great commenters. I guarantee you're going to learn something useful. We'll take a very quick break. We'll continue our conversation with Eric Peters, just the other side of these commercial messages. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Eric Peters from ericpetersautos.com is my guest. Let's talk about corn pop. Let's talk about corn. Yep. <laughs> yep. Well, it, about a week or so ago, uh, our, uh, our our great leader decided that the, the way to cope with the doubling, uh, doubling of gas prices that he engineered is to introduce even more ethanol alcohol into the fuel supply. Um, most of the gas you buy presently is uh, E10 or 10% ethanol. He's going to up that to E15, and that's somehow going to save you money, supposedly. 
because it's produced it's produced right here in America and it's renewable. But here's the catch, which they don't tell you, and it just makes my teeth want to fall out of my head. Ethanol contains less energy than gasoline. So what does that mean? When you put more ethanol into your gas, you don't go as far. So now maybe pay a little bit less for a gallon of gas, but that gallon of gas, and I put it in air fingers quotes because it's only 85% gas now, doesn't take you as far. So you have to fill up again sooner. So, you know, you wind up actually paying more because your car doesn't go as far on E85 as it would on E10, let alone 100% gasoline. And that's how this guy thinks uh, Americans are going to be sopped into believing he's doing something about the high gas prices that he engineered. Talk to me about alcohol and its effect on the components of a fuel system. I've heard some things that it's not very mm-hmm. good for your car. No, it's very bad, in fact. And that's the other facet of this that's not getting a whole lot of coverage. Now, for late model vehicles, and, and that's generally vehicles made since the early 2000s, most of those are designed to handle fairly high content uh, alcohol content fuels. But older vehicles and a lot of outdoor power equipment, things like lawnmowers, tractors, chainsaws, and so on, if you go and look at your owner's manual, there may even be a sticker on it, and it will tell you, do not use fuel that has higher than 10% alcohol or E10, or you'll void your warranty. Mm. Of course, the warranty is no longer in effect, is it? So now you're going to get left holding the bag when this alcohol, which is corrosive, uh, it causes plastic to deteriorate, to crack, to break. It causes seals to get brittle causes all manner of problems within the fuel system because alcohol attracts moisture and water. And that's a big issue with boats uh, and, and with outdoor power equipment. You leave it out there with the fuel in the tank, water gets in the tank, and now you've got water in the fuel. And also you've got, if you have hard lines, if you've got steel lines that weren't designed for high alcohol content fuels, they tend to rust internally. The tanks tend to rust. So now you get rust flakes floating through your fuel system. And a paranoid person might say that corn pop is trying to accelerate the retirement of older vehicles and to make outdoor power equipment also more unaffordable as part of this whole green agenda to push us all into proletarian hives in the inner city somewhere. Wow. Now, given how hard they are pushing EVs, um, I would say I couldn't rule that out. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't sound as paranoid to me as it might to some. No, nothing's off base anymore. You know, these people can no longer, you can no longer, I think, attribute what they are doing to mere incompetence, to mere stupidity, as you might have back in the Jimmy Cotta days. You know, Jimmy struck me as somebody who wasn't a bad guy. He just wasn't a confident guy. Now, you have got people who are actively hostile toward what you might call the American way of life, the, you know, the middle-class way of life, uh, the idea that ordinary people should own single-family homes, have private automobiles, uh, and be able to live a life that in many ways uh, is, is better than the lives rich people lived 100 years ago. The elites don't like that. You know, they want to create a pyramid with themselves at the very top and most of the rest of us down below. Agreed. Yeah, it's, you know, the the Davos crowd, I know some people dismiss it. That just sounds like conspiracy theory. But the, the World Economic Forum and its acolytes are very open about what they are trying to accomplish. And, uh, and, and people, you know, see them behind the mask of, you know, the World Economic Forum and think, oh, well, these billionaires couldn't possibly, you know, have anything, you know, uh, nefarious in mind for us. I don't think they're paying close enough attention, Eric. Well, that conspiracy theory moniker, that, you know, that would have been a, a, an easier thing to accept, let's say, 20 years ago when they were more secretive about what they were up to. But now they're blatant and obvious about it. They talk about it at TED conferences. They're, uh, they're very clear about their agenda. And their, their, their motto is, in the future, you will own nothing and be happy about it. 
which kind of begs the question of who's going to own everything then? And of course, the answer is them. You know, what they want is to, cre- is to create a modern kind of feudalism where they, the lords of the manor, if you will, uh, own and control everything. And we, the serfs, live upon sufferance. We're allowed whatever they're going to give us, provided we keep our heads down and our shoulders stoop and do what we're told. Wow. Talk to me about uh, shrinkflation as it applies to electric vehicles. You had a recent article on this. Yeah, I thought that that would be uh, a useful way to try to understand some of the dishonesty uh, regarding the way electric vehicles are pushed and peddled and propagandized onto the public. There was um, a recent article about how they want to increase the fast charging infrastructure from the current roughly 400 volts to 800 volts architecture in order to reduce the recharge times. You know, that's a big issue with electric cars. And what they don't tell you is that that's only a partial charge. They always leave that out, which I find very interesting. The nature of, of electric cars is such that you cannot fully charge an electric car on a fast charger because it will damage the battery or it will create heat or increase the likelihood of a short circuit resulting in a fire. So you can only get a certain amount of charge into the battery in a fast charger. So it's not like uh, you know filling up a conventional car where when you fill it up in five minutes, it's full. They want you to believe, oh, well, now you only have to wait 10 minutes to get a partial charge, low voice, asterisks, you know, like they do in the radio commercials where the right. fast talking guy goes on. Right. So, so what that means is, okay, that's your partial charge of your already short-range electric car. Let's say it goes 200 miles. Now you got maybe 100 miles or 80 miles or whatever it is. Well, you're going to have to stop again, aren't you? Probably. And now you're going to have to sit there again and wait again. So it's serial waiting. And I think they know that most people aren't going to put up with that any more than they would put up with sitting in a fast food line, let's say, uh, for a half hour or 45 minutes to get an overpriced cheeseburger. It's just not going to happen unless people have no choice. And, of course, that's what they want ultimately is to, is to arrange things so that people don't have any choice and that the only thing they can drive if they still want to drive is an electric car. Well, it's things like this that make me more determined than ever. Even even if I have to shed a bit of comfort in my life, I am going to live as independently as I possibly can, whether that comes down to the cars that I drive, uh, when, whether it comes to, you know, uh, providing more of my own food. For instance, let's, let's touch on the subject of uh, chickens, ducks, and, and yep. the like. Uh, talk to me about what's yep. going on in your life with, uh, you know, taking charge of, of more of your own food production. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, life is really good. Uh, you know, this weekend, uh, we're probably going to process one of our ducks to have a nice duck dinner, fresh duck, and uh, largely for free. If I went to the supermarket to get that duck, I was astonished when I looked at the prices, um, ranging depending on the size of the bird, 45 to $50 for, for one store-bought duck. You know, so you have to be pretty affluent living high on the hog these days in order to afford a duck. And I don't doubt that that soon is going to happen with regard to chickens as well, which, you know, historically chicken has always been cheap. Well, you know, part of the problem with what's going on is that food prices are rising and so are feed prices, which, by the way, I should mention, it bears on our conversation about corn pop. Ethanol, ethanol is made out of corn, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Well, that means that feedstock that would ordinarily have gone to chickens and to cattle and so on, there's going to be less of that, Okay. So that's going to mean an increase in the price of meat at the store. And that doesn't even get into this whole business that's going on with regard to Ukraine and other supply chain issues that are all, almost certainly going to have a very dramatic effect on the cost of food, and in particular, meat. So it will behoove you, if you have the, uh, the ability, 
to have a small flock to do that. And if you don't have the ability to do that, to connect with people in your orbit who may be in the position to do that and figure out some way to barter something with them of value that you can, you can exchange with them for chicken or duck or whatever suits your fancy or, you know, pigs or cows. Get into having a quarter cow or a half a cow with your neighbor. Some way so that you aren't dependent on the store for food in the future. Amen. By the way, six our six little chickens came home last night. So we, we've mm-hmm. got, got the coop set up. We are just, now we're going to raise them and hopefully they'll be laying within about a month or so. A little something to look forward Excellent. to. That, that, yeah, oh, it's going to be great. Uh, those six birds, you know, once they're mature and they start laying, you should be getting at least three or four eggs every day out of that. And I am so looking forward to it. Eric, great to visit mm-hmm. with you as always. I'll have a link to your website. And until we talk again next time, thanks again for all you're doing. Thank you, Brian. I appreciate you having me. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Thank you so much for being part of our growing audience of wrong thinkers. And do know that the program is brought to you by great sponsors like Dixie Chiropractic. That would be Dr. Ward Wagner. You can visit their website at DixieChiro.com. And yes, there is a link provided in my show notes under the sponsors section. Three specific groups of people that uh, Dr. Wagner would really like me to reach out to. And so I'm I'm speaking to anyone who has uh, suffered car accident injuries. You realize you can get treatment with no out-of-pocket cost. You can contact his office for details. If you're dealing with bulging, herniated discs, first of all, my condolences. Secondly, check out the $99 intro special, two treatments plus massage. Or if you're dealing with neuropathy, check out the $99 Calmare treatment plus massage. Again, that's DixieChiro.com. Look at my show notes at thebrianhideshow.com. You'll find a link there in the sponsor section. And uh, click on it. Get a hold of Dr. Ward Wagner. This is especially for my listeners in southern Utah. Well, let's take a moment and talk about truth. And I know it sounds very lofty. Oh, yes, this show is about truth, justice, and the American way. But... Actually, I'm pretty serious about truth just because it is so tough to to really get your mind around the truth today. And I, I'm not saying this because we're dumb and we don't really know, you know what it is. I mean, we just wander around in this permanent state of indecision or navel-gazing where we can't decide what's true and what isn't. It's more like there's a very concerted effort. In fact, there's a massive apparatus whose purpose is to keep us from getting too close to the truth, or at least truths that would be inconvenient to the people who want to exercise power and control over us. So as tough as it is to find truth in a time of near universal deception, it is absolutely worth the effort. I'm grateful for amazing writers like The Good Citizen, and if you haven't subscribed to The Good Citizen Substack, you probably should. I'm just recommending it because it's one of the best resources for wrong thinkers that I've come across in a long time. And there's a great article, Truth is a Magnet, Repulsion, Propulsion, Levitation, Destination, and Joy. And this is an analogy that actually stacks up very well, comparing truth to a magnetic uh, levitating train. Now, the, the good citizen starts with a quote from Alexander Solzhenitsyn. So right there, I'm like, all right, I'm paying attention. Here's the quote. In our country, the lie has become not just a moral category, but a pillar of the state. 
Now, I'm going to warn you, this article uses the word retard, but I want you to understand it's being used in the sense that uh, that means late again, and it's not a pejorative toward people who may have uh, a mental handicap. But with that disclaimer out of the way, the good citizen talks about magnets and retards, saying the fastest train in the world today is being developed in Japan and can reach top speeds of 377 miles per hour. And it can reach speeds 350% faster than the average train in Amtrak's arsenal. If it were operated in North America, this train could take passengers from Montreal to San Diego in roughly the same time it takes to travel by commercial airplane, if you include all the airport waiting time and security theater. And the technology that powers this train is called maglev, or magnetic levitation. The technology that powers information sharing today is called big collusion, It can travel around the world in seconds and arrive at destinations as misinformation resulting in ignorance. It's the merger of legacy media handled by intelligence agencies like the CIA, the FBI, MI6, with big tech technologies that work with surveillance agencies. GCHQ, the NSA, Five Eyes, that spy and abuse their own citizens when not constantly manipulating them for submission and control. And the result is that every story of significant importance is carried by false narratives or outright lies and propaganda and shuttled around the world by unknowing people who are a little slow to catch on to this ruse that's been happening for decades. The good citizen says, let's call them what they are, retards. Now he says, spare me the feigned outrage of using this word. It should never have been hijacked as a pejorative. The word retard in French simply means late, tard, and again, re. He says the retards are everywhere. For retards, the truth is often nowhere to be found, but they are happiest not caring about it either way. The average retard would rather outsource their thinking to reliable sources and technological search engines and algorithms. They simply don't have time for the truth and would prefer to defend the lies of others that often have the backing of the like-minded crowd populated with many more people like themselves. So if you want to be surrounded by millions of them at once in the digital sphere, then simply join Twitter. Now, for those who have the skills, ability, desire, and pride of being accurately informed and who do not want to be late again when confronted with the news, the truth can be a powerful force. It can guide rational decision-making at the individual level while carrying out larger expeditions at the institutional level, mainly exposing corruption and liberating people from tyranny. Whenever or wherever there is censorship in the world, it is always imposed by the institutions of corruption that have a monopoly on information dissemination and, and seek to continue their tyranny. In fact, he says the truth is often their kryptonite. The truth and hunting for the truth requires dedication, patience, healthy and constant skepticism, and most of all, the courage to reject the dominant narrative proffered by the masses who are susceptible to conformity through manipulation by behavioral psychologists and propagandists who are experts in crowd psychology. So the hunt for the truth and its power as a force for good in our world follows a similar pattern as the physics behind maglev, repulsion, propulsion, levitation, destination, and joy. And this is, this is where the analogy becomes very interesting. So let's talk about repulsion. The Good Citizen writes, the key to understanding truth in our world today is simply rooted in skepticism born of broken trust. We're all creatures of habit who are attracted to people, ideas, and sources that we trust rather than distrust. Break our trust over and over again, and the skepticism builds, and that source becomes untrustworthy forever. 
This is the self-immolation behavior of the corporate legacy media for the past 20 to 30 years, and their ratings prove it. As long as there are others out there telling the truth or hosting those who do, people will be attracted to those sources once all the authoritative sources that Google has been engineered to point us to completely self-destruct. After the past two years in the great American hospicide, that should include all of them. And he says they dug their own graves, jumped in, and buried themselves in lies and propaganda that resulted in the deaths of millions around the world who were never taught to think critically or be skeptical of the government and corporations. They paid the ultimate price for it. Nobody should ever trust them again. Unfortunately, some will. Now, not everyone is equipped with the same lie detectors or critical thinking skills, both of which require years of nurturing and tuning. These skills are born of honest reflection, an assessment of when trust is first broken, resulting in the initial emergence of skepticism that evolves into critical reflection, and then recognizing that the truth is being buried, often intentionally. When Google or Facebook searches start to look suspicious, the first seeds of skepticism are planted. When the search engine leads one to believe something they sooner or later learn was entirely false, fabricated, or a manufactured hodgepodge of lies, half-truths, and agenda-driven narratives, then the trust is first broken. And when it happens over and over again for years, the result is a person who instantly becomes suspicious of the narratives being pushed in lockstep, all of them, and become repulsed by it. Not just the information being preferred, but the sources that are propagating lies. Those sources are then filed as if a person or uh, a living entity in our long-term memory storage for later recall as do not trust. Sorry, KSL, but you are probably one of the top ones on my list of sources that uh, I'll look to see what you're saying, but only because I believe that whatever the truth is is usually 180 degrees opposite of what you're telling me. Now, one of the more interesting YouTube channels, Truthstream Media, that have yet to be censored for some reason, recently exposed how online monopolies rig their search engines to function like truth machines. Google will reveal on any given topic that there are hundreds of millions or billions of results. However, on major topics like climate change, they will limit the results to the same dozen sources and cut off results after 14 to 20 pages. You cannot go any further than that to dig for information that might undermine or contradict the truth that Google wants you to see about climate change. Those forbidden sources are being memory hold. One has to go to DuckDuckGo or Brave Search to find anything that Google now forbids. Now, Truthstream Media's short documentary is called Where Did the Rest of the Internet Go? And it's worth a watch. In fact, he's time-stamped it to show the climate change search example, and that video is linked within the article. The point is, this is blatant social engineering. This is repulsion, and people ought to be repulsed by it. If this doesn't get people motivated to leave their truth machine, their walled, dark city, and to go out in search of what they know is out there, well then, he says they're retards. And he gives some examples of this, and I'll, I'll leave this to you to find out. There are a couple other things I want to get to, and we'll do that just the other side of the break. And again, I know I know that uh, the word retard is probably triggering a few people. I'm sorry. In the way that it's being used here, please understand, though, this is not being used as a pejorative against mentally handicapped individuals. This is, uh, it's being used in a more accurate sense than people are likely to be comfortable with, but nonetheless, is still applicable. Okay, we got to take a real quick break. We'll be back with the Good Citizens article right after these messages. 
This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. And we are back. Our show is brought to you by the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. Bottom line, if you are looking for a home loan in Utah or Idaho, reach out to Heather at 435-703-4522. If you're in St. George, stop by her office at 619 South Bluff Street. Heather's NMLS ID is 715386. Patriot Home Mortgage is an equal housing opportunity lender. So I'm sharing this article from the Good Citizen Substack, Truth is a Magnet. I'm going to give you a couple examples of what repulsion looks like over just the past six years. Claim. Trump colluded with Russia to win the 2016 election. Facts, the Clinton campaign colluded with British intelligence and Ukraine assets to fabricate the collusion hoax. Obama put a special prosecutor in the FBI on the case, mobilizing them as secret police against their political opponents. Claim, SARS-CoV-2 came from a wet market in Wuhan, China. Facts, it came from a lab in Wuhan, maybe funded by the U.S., France, and China. It's possible that it was released in Wuhan during the World Military Games by the U.S. in October to frame China, more than likely. Claim, the 2020 U.S. election was fair. Facts, Wisconsin, Georgia, Arizona, Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Nevada all show irregularities, double-scanned ballots, dead people voting, with 300,000-plus false Biden ballots confirmed. Enough to overturn the results and show it was likely rigged in just five or six Democrat-controlled counties. Claim, the COVID vaccines, in quotation marks, stop transmission. Fact. Only retards still believe this. Ditto for the COVID vaccines save lives. Ditto for the COVID vaccines are safe. Here's another one. Masks work. Yeah, those people still believe it. You get the idea, says the good citizen. It would take a year of cataloging all their lies over the past two years, and one would still be unable to just keep up with the new lies. One would never have enough time to finish the cataloging job. When people recognize one lie and then another, they see it's all just one endless stream of lies, and they're repulsed. As with the maglev train, this repulsion results in propulsion. It propels them forward. It's the call to action of a hero on a quest for the truth. So here he talks about propulsion. Once it begins, the hunt for truth becomes more of a concerted and dedicated task. At its core, it's fundamentally about those who, having been repulsed by the lies, are then willing to undertake the lonely journey to the ends of the earth to search for the pieces that might help contribute in due course with the help of others to revealing the truth. Now this was once the scientific process before science was for sale to the highest bidders, and only management with a blank check and a gun to scientists' heads could afford to buy it. Those who undertake the journey are the greatest threat to both management and the Borg of hive-mind troglodytes they psychologically engineer and assimilate. In the case of the pandemic, the Covidian Borg was essential in carrying out the management's agenda. There is no more powerful tool than millions of acolytes doing the dirty work of amplifying the wrong messages and helping smear the truth seekers whenever they emerge. But eventually the truth wins. People who undertake the journey will find the points where lies disappear, 
During the pandemic, one of the greatest points of gathering was right here on Substack. Doctors who tell to tell the, who dared to tell the truth, rather, and were smeared for it by the establishment powers, came to Substack to write, to expose the lies, to spread the truth about masks, lockdowns, distancing, child abuse, and deadly vaccines. And you know what? Millions of people followed. Substack grew at a faster pace in the nine, or faster rate rather, in the past nine months than in the previous four years. That's not a mistake. People flocked here and were propelled by the truth and a desire to cleanse themselves in it, wash away all the incessant muck they knew their governments and media were soiling them with. So the truth as a force can propel the masses in the right direction and set them on their journey. Even a small number of courageous people is all it takes to make a difference. Let's talk about levitation. The journey for truth can keep an individual or the masses on that journey above the fray. They know the lies and slander from instinct or experience, and on their journey, they keep themselves from falling into the muck where all the con artists and propagandists, smear merchants, drive-by journalists, and all the other forces of deceit do their dirty work. The truth seekers float above it all, undeterred, knowing they are on the righteous path. Then there's destination. Now, this one, I have to admit, this one kind of pinged me pretty hard, but I think this is true. There's a meme that makes the rounds more and more frequently as the lies continue to pile up. It shows two booths with masses of people waiting in line at the booth with an overhanging sign that reads, Comfortable Lies, and nobody waiting in line at the booth that reads, Unpleasant Truths. Now, everybody knows the comforting line is the retard line. And this meme is very popular, and the irony makes it partly a lie. It's shared millions of times across attention networks whenever there's a big lie circulating from the powers that manufacture them. The reason for this is simple. There are far more people who are seeking those unpleasant truths than this meme, than its meme sharers would admit, or the meme reveals. Why else would it be so popular if millions didn't recognize the big lie and desire the truth when it's notably absent from the public dialogue? So his point here is everyone sharing the meme thinks of themselves as someone who would not be in the retard line. It is a good point. And I think there are more people out there searching for the truth. So I feel like I got stung a bit there, but I I accept it and I'll learn from it. Then there's joy. The truth will always be the kryptonite of tyrants because the truth is a magnet. When absent, we are repulsed. Trust is broken. If repulsed enough, we undertake the quest and are propelled forward in search of it. When we sense it getting nearer, we levitate more above the fray at increasing velocity until we recognize the destination approaching closer and closer. When we share it with others, we can empower them, and they go and empower others, and it can take time, sometimes years and months, but the truth will get out to everyone eventually. What was unthinkable four months ago is happening today. Late again, but still finally happening. They're talking about vaccines, killing and injuring athletes on Australian sports shows and on British television. The mask scam is being exposed one study at a time. The lights on the vaccine crimes against humanity, the sudden deaths from climate change and coincidences are getting brighter. And soon they'll be too bright to ignore. We're doing that, all of us together, by not being retards. False flag war crimes in Ukraine have a shelf life of one or two days before Western media are forced into silence from good citizens spreading the truth and amplifying it across networks. Even the BBC was forced to admit that the Tochka missile last Friday that killed women and children was Ukrainian and that the Ukrainian government had been lying 
He says the freaking BBC had to tell the truth. We're doing that together by not being retards. For the first time in 20 years, millions of people around the world ditched their dumb phones for smartphones this year. Like the old like the old flip phone or classic Nokia 3310. The truth about central bank digital currencies, QR code madness, vax passports, and total surveillance digital slavery is spreading fast, and people are actively altering their consumer behavior toward liberty and to undermine the management's plans for tyranny. The needle is moving slowly because we tell the truth, because we spread the truth unafraid. Now, there's a Mark Twain quote that if you tell the truth, you don't have to remember anything. We instinctively know that lies require stories. Each lie is a new trap we set for ourselves or states set for themselves against their own people. It undermines trust. It's toxic and deadly. So the simple solution is to always tell the truth first before going on the wrong journey toward chaotic destinations of deception. You'll sometimes recognize you've made the right journey by the vilification and slander that comes your way. It may cost you relationships and friendships, and sometimes the stakes will be much, much higher but you'll know you're right over the target. Every managerial state drone that went along with the deception to keep their job, even if it resulted in the deaths of their fellow citizens, was a zero, a nobody, a loser with a giant L on their forehead. Conversely, every whistleblower in history who dared to speak the truth against powerful forces and risk the consequences was a hero. And what's heroism, if not the pinnacle of bravery and courage, motivated by an unflinching desire to reveal the truth? To be brave and courageous in the face of the brainwashed mob and the insidious powers that psychologically manipulate them for their ends. The good citizen says, levitate above the fray. Sooner than later, if enough of us show courage, we can derail their toxic agenda with the life force of magnets and the propulsion of truth. What's that, if not joy? I think there's a lot of great uh, content in this particular essay. Don't be off-put by, you know, the use of the R word here. Just understand what what the good citizen is describing is a process that I think most of us are in, in the middle of right now. We're all somewhere on that continuum of, I'm trying to get closer to the truth. Now, our, our reasons for, for seeking out the truth may differ from person to person. But if you have recognized at some level, hey... There are a lot of uh, sources out there, especially the official sources, the narrative managers that are lying to me. Your journey has begun. Do you have the courage to continue on? To trudge steadily upward, fighting gravity and all the other things they throw at you? To seek the truth? I'm just glad to have your companionship for the journey. This is The Brian Hyde Show. trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. This is a program that is designed to become obsolete for its listeners. Let me explain that. My goal is not to tell you what to think. My goal is not to, uh, you know, spoon feed you. Here's what you need to repeat as today's talking points. 
My goal is to encourage you to think so clearly and so independently that you have no need for me. At some point, you are moving under your own power and firmly underway on your own journey toward the truth. And I'm not going to be upset or I'm not going to be offended when you say, Brian, thanks, but I don't need you anymore. I will cheerfully send you on your way, wishing you all the best, because the goal here is not to create a bunch of followers. It's to wake up those lions out there who are leaders, who feel, do I dare say it, who feel God's finger on them, calling them to stand up and speak the truth. I think you're one of those people. I thank you for for having the courage to face that call. I've got some great sponsors who make this show possible, including Dixie Chiropractic, HSLAmmo.com, SewingAndQuiltingCenter.com, MonticelloCollege.org, LifesavingFood.com, the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage, and also GovernYourCrypto.com. I don't know if you realized, but today is Patriot's Day. Yeah, April 19th. This is the day of the shot heard around the world. And I want to share with you what I think may be one of the the best and most clever essays that I have read in a while. This is from Robert E. Wright from the American Institute for Economic Research. The title is, What to the Classical Liberal is Patriot's Day? Now, if you have ever read any of uh, Frederick uh, Douglass's writings, you might recognize that uh, Frederick Douglass, the former slave, had an essay called, uh, What to the Slave is the Fourth of July? It's it's very powerful. And in, in that, essentially, he just says, look, slaves were encouraged to celebrate the holidays, not so much as, oh, look, we're celebrating freedom, but as kind of a pressure relief valve, you know, encouraged to go and to get drunk and to play games and essentially to <clears throat> revel in excess to where they actually looked forward to going back to work. I know that sounds crazy, but uh, but again, this is coming from the standpoint of somebody who actually was in the experience, was a slave, and then later was freed. So with that in mind, here's what Robert E. Wright has to say. This is uh, delivered uh, as, as if it were an address to, to a college. In fact, let me look just real quick here. I want to set the stage properly. Um, he says... Uh, This was, literati will readily perceive that this essay is adapted from a speech written by Frederick Douglass in 1852 and delivered on July 5th of that year in Rochester, New York. So it says, Mr. President Ruger, colleagues and fellow classical liberals, an internal memo says that I am to deliver a Patriot's Day essay. Although I've had the privilege to write for this beautiful website 208 times since 2019, the familiar venue does not seem to free me from embarrassment. He who could address this audience without a soaring sensation has stronger nerves than I. A feeling has kept over, crept over me, quite unfavorable to the exercise of my limited powers of writing. So I rely heavily on a speech on a similar topic delivered long ago by a mutual friend of ours. The fact is, the distance between this website and the state of statism, from which I personally escape to the extent currently possible, is considerable. And the difficulties to be overcome in getting from the latter to the former are by no means slight. For the uninitiated, today is Patriot's Day, the third Monday in April. It is the birthday adjusted to create three-day weekends of New England's de facto independence, the day in 1775 its people finally took up arms to thwart their father country's heavy paternalist ambitions. The celebration carries our minds back to that day, to the acts of our great deliverance, and marks the beginning of another year of our national life and reminds us that the the Republic of America is 247 years old. 
247 years, though impossible for a human, is but a mere speck in the life of a civilization, which number their years by thousands. I am glad that America lingers yet in the beginning of its national career because there is hope in the thought, and hope is much needed, under the dark clouds which tower above the horizon. The eyes of reformers are met with angry flashes portending disastrous times, but their hearts may well beat lighter at the thought that America is young, still in the impressionable stage of its existence. Reformers can still hope that the high lessons of wisdom, of justice, and of truth will yet give direction to its destiny. Were the nation older, the patriot's heart might be sadder, the reformer's brow heavier, and its future might be shrouded in yet more gloom. Fellow classical liberals, he says, I shall not presume to dwell at length on the associations that cluster about this day. The simple story of it is that 247 years ago, the people of New England were British subjects under the, I dare say, British clown. That government exercised its parental prerogatives, imposing upon its colonial children such restraints, burdens, and limitations as, in its clownish judgment, it deemed in the best personal interests of its leadership class. But our forefathers and mothers, who had not adopted the fashionable idea of that day, of the infallibility of government, of the absolute and the absolute characters of its acts, presumed to differ from the home government in respect to the wisdom and the justice of some of the burdens and some of those burdens and restraints. They went so far in their excitement as to pronounce the measures of the government unjust, unreasonable, and oppressive, and altogether as and altogether such as ought not to be quietly submitted to. To say now that New England was right and England wrong is exceedingly easy. Everybody today can discant on the tyranny of England toward the colonies. But there was a time when to pronounce against England and in favor of the cause of the colonies tried men's souls. They who did so were accounted in their day what we would call today spreaders of misinformation, white supremacists and domestic terrorists, feeling themselves harshly and unjustly treated by the home government. America's forefathers earnestly sought redress. They petitioned and remonstrated. They did so in a decorous, respectful, and loyal manner. Yet they saw themselves treated with sovereign coldness and scorn. Yet they persevered. As the sheet anchor takes a firmer hold, and when the ship is tossed by the storm, so did the cause of our forefathers grow stronger as it breasted the chilling blasts of kingly displeasure. Oppression makes wise people mad and restive. America's wise patriots felt themselves the victims of grievous wrongs, wholly incurable. With brave people, there is always a remedy for oppression. Our forefathers were peaceful people, but they did not shrink from agitating against oppression. The idea of a total separation of the colonies from the crown was, though, a startling idea. The timid and the prudent were shocked and alarmed by it. Entrenched interests hate all changes, except those that promise profit. But the revolutionary idea moved on, and the country with it. The battles of Lexington, Concord, and Metomny, Metomny led to the common-sense pamphlet of Paine and the Declaration of Independence. Much death and destruction, physical and financial, ensued. From the ashes, though, arose a fledgling phoenix that soon took free flight, soaring far above others in a glorious liberty that has released millions from bondage and saved millions more from untimely death the world over. But today, the round rock, or the round top, rather, of our ship of state, dark and threatening clouds may be seen. From the round top of our ship of state, those dark and threatening clouds may be seen. Heavy billows, like mountains in the distance, disclose to the leeward huge forms of flinty rocks. 
cling to Patriot's Day and to its principles with the grasp of a storm-tossed mariner to a spar at midnight. The statesmanship of our forefathers looked beyond the passing moment and stretched away in strength into the distant future. They seized upon eternal principles and set a glorious example in their defense. Mark them. The fathers of this republic did most deliberately under the inspiration of a glorious patriotism and with a sublime faith in the great principles of justice and freedom laid deep the cornerstone of the national superstructure, which has risen and still rises in grandeur around you. On this fundamental work, this day, of this fundamental work, rather, this day is the anniversary. The din of business is hushed, and even Mammon seems to have quitted his grasp this day, at least in Massachusetts and Maine. Now, I've got to kind of edit here. You can see the rest of this article in its entirety. I've got a link to it in the show notes. He says, we have to do with the past only as we can make it useful to the present and to the future. Now is the time, the important time. Our forefathers have lived, died, and have done their work and have done much of it well. You live and must die and you must do your work. You have no right to wear out and waste the hard-earned fame of your forefathers to cover your indolence. The evil that people do lives after them. The good is often interred with their bones. Would you have me argue that humans are entitled to liberty, to human rights, so-called? That they are the rightful owners of their bodies? The state has already declared it. There's not a human beneath the canopy of heaven who does not know that the state ownership of his or her body is wrong. Is this the land of your the, the land your forefathers loved, the freedom they died to win? Nay. He says, what can be done about it? Perhaps instead of celebrating Patriots Day, classical liberals should learn from it by establishing parallel governance structures, alternative institutional arrangements, anchored in liberty, just as our forefathers did. Godspeed the glorious hour when no government on earth shall exercise a lordly power over the quivering masses. Again, this is from Robert E. Wright. It's well worth reading the entire column. It's linked in my show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Welcome back to the show. I want to give a shout out here to sewingandquiltingcenter.com. They're actually located in St. George, Utah, 779 South Bluff Street. I've been trying my best to, to convey how important and how worthwhile it is to have at your disposal a good quality sewing machine or perhaps a serger or if you're into quilting, a long arm quilting machine, not just from the standpoint of, oh, I can create beautiful things with this, which you can, but also from the standpoint that this would be a wonderful step towards <clears throat> improving your self-reliance and basically being able to repair or even manufacture your own clothing. I know people are like, oh man, my mom dressed me in homemade clothes when I was a kid. Hey, I was there too. But given some of the different uh, supply chain breakdowns that we're seeing, given the rising inflation, which is not abating, given the increasing costs of fuel and the corresponding rising costs of everything else, does it not make sense that maybe this would be a good thing to have as part of your plan B? A sewing and quilting center will not only sell you the machines, they'll train you how to use them. They can service the machines. They have all the, the supplies that go along with it. I don't know how you could lose. Check them out. There's a link in my show notes under sponsors, sewingandquiltingcenter.com. 
You know, let's let's talk a little bit about being good parents. I know most people don't tune in. Well, let's see what kind of parenting advice I can pick up today from Brian's show. But I've got a couple of doozies for you today. Paul Rosenberg has a great article on the epiphanies of childhood and how to help your child make discoveries that encourage personal greatness. Even with my adult kids, I find that this was really useful information. Paul Rosenberg says one of the most difficult facets of parenting is dealing with the epiphanies of youth, particularly those following puberty. Now, on one hand, epiphanies, moments of clarity, understanding, and insight are crucially important. They're the muscles and sinews of a passionate and productive life. On the other, this is a season of life especially prone to the overextension and poor interpretation of epiphanies. Why? Well, because they lack experience. So the parent then is called upon to do a more or less impossible job, to look inside the child, divine the crux of a revelation that they can't very well communicate, and then to either clarify or correct it for them in a way that they can accept. But since handling this well is so elusive, most parents fall into two almost binary choices. Number one, to stand with their personal or family dogmas, whether it's religious, political, or whatever, and trying to push the child's vision into it. Or number two, to evade any reaction, saying, that's nice, smiling, and then changing the subject. Now, his point is the first choice is counterproductive. The second is an evasion at a crucial juncture. So something better is required. But he says, before we get to that, let's back up and see why puberty complicates this. There is no greater surge of hormones in a human life than that of puberty. Moreover, this surge occurs while our brains are only partly formed and our experiences are relatively limited. Now, that's a recipe for difficulties. Hormones, of course, are deeply tied to instincts, and human instincts can be problematic, mirroring those of primates to a very significant extent. The chemicals involved are all but identical. For example, you've no doubt noticed teenagers trying to humiliate one another. That's the expression of primate-level dominance instincts, wrapped in human-level expression, hybrid human-primate social interactions. So we have partly formed beings carrying around massive brains that they don't know very well how to operate, being hit with a massive surge of non-rational impulses they can control only with difficulty. Now, this obviously is a difficult passage for young people. It may be necessary for the continuance of the species, but it makes a lot of trouble, too, and that means parents are especially necessary here, as impossible as it may be to do the job correctly. So the parent must walk a line between our two options above, either doing nothing or trying to subdue and redirect epiphanies. The best way way to deal with this, so far as Paul Rosenberg has been able to find, is to acknowledge that epiphanies are basically good, but to insert some element of reason and proportion. Now, he says epiphanies are important. They not only provide expression to inborn and positively engaged instincts, but they can be essential components upon which beautiful lives are built. We are diminished by a lack of contact with upward movements of the heart. The better parts of us wither. We never develop higher capacities and insights, and we slide more and more toward becoming what C.S. Lewis termed mere trousered apes. Paul Rosenberg says epiphanies are furthermore crucial for grasping that good and noble form in us and grow out of us. Now, without this belief, the young person becomes cold, legalistic, uncreative, and an easy mark for the manipulators and abusers of the world. Moments of understandings, revelations, epiphanies, internal breakthroughs, moments so bright in our memories that we can remember where we were. These are the proper building blocks for a life 
not certifications or degrees or other externalities. So he says, the best method I know of to help a young person in such times is to say something like this. I am very, very glad you're getting moments of inspiration. They're crucial to becoming not just a living soul, but a great and large soul. Now, this experience of yours is inside you, and so I can't completely grasp it. And I suspect you can't either. I know I couldn't when I was your age. And so I have two pieces of advice for you. One is to embrace the experience, and the second is to remember that you don't completely understand it. I had such experiences when I was young, and I didn't really understand them for many years. Maybe it will be the same for you. Maybe it won't. But please stay open to that possibility. Now, again, he says, this is the best response I know. But whatever the risks involved, and they are legitimate risks, I think we must accept them. Things could go wrong, but things can always go wrong. Parenting is not for the timid, and squashing all risk squashes the best aspects of life along with it. Our job as parents is not to evade criticism and disappointment, as much as we all want that as well. Our job is to create wonderful humans, great men and women. And the truth is that great men and women require upward movements of the heart. These are their fuel, the influences that coalesce their vision, their courage, and their strength. They cannot become great without them. Paul Rosenberg says there's a special beauty in the soul that experiences wonder, rapture, satisfaction, appreciation, thankfulness, respect, exhilaration, discovery, inspiration, pride, yearning, honor, reverence, and dignity. And it's a beauty that leaves the entire world a better place. You know, dang it, every time I think, you know, I haven't done too bad of a job of raising my kids, I read something like this and realize, holy cow, <laughs> I haven't done nearly as good as, as I thought I had. But uh, but this is sound advice. I've got a link to it in the show notes. I hope you'll take a closer look and, and where necessary, apply it in your own life. Now, I want to shift from him to uh, Dan Sanchez. Uh, Dan is, uh, I believe he's... Uh, Managing editor? Anyway, he's, he is one of the, the top-level people at the Foundation for Economic Education, a wonderful writer in his own right. I have found that over the years I've come to appreciate his take on pretty much everything. And his essay on a stress-free way to get children to do chores and become responsible has some really great advice. He says household chores can be a major source of discord between parents and children. Parents, exasperated from constantly having to remind the child, resort to scolding. Children, feeling harassed, associate negative emotions with the chores, and they look for ways to evade them. And this provides more scolding and a vicious cycle forms, creating a dysfunctional, even toxic, household dynamic. The parents also become increasingly disappointed over the child's irresponsibility. They worry about that character flaw haunting the child into adulthood. Now, he says that concern is well-founded, but their approach is not. You can't scold a child into good character. Repeated scoldings may prod a child into getting the chores done fairly regularly, and that may get you a cleaner house, but not a more responsible child, which in the long run is vastly more important. So eventually when the child leaves home, the prod will be left behind, and so will the begrudging behavior that depends on it. This is why dorm rooms such be, tend to be such pigsties. Thankfully, Dan Sanchez says... Parents can still get their children to do chores in a way that preserves family harmony and instills intrinsic motivation, actual responsibility, and good character. We're going to come back to that on the other side of the break. If you want to check this article out, 
Just go to my show notes at thebrianhideshow.com. While you're there, consider scrolling to the bottom of the show notes, hit the subscribe button, share your email with me, and I'll send you a copy of those show notes each day that I do the program. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. And we are back. Just want to give a quick shout out here to lifesavingfood.com. That is food storage. I've always thought it was important to, to have food storage as part of your personal preparedness. As I look around and see some of the stories about anticipated food shortages, and I, I don't think this is scaremongering. I think that uh, there are some very legitimate concerns about what could be coming due to fertilizer shortages, the rising cost of fuel, and uh, just, you know, unrest throughout the world. Might be a good time to to really take a look at your existing food storage, fill in any gaps in your program, or if you haven't started, maybe jump on that uh, bandwagon now. All it takes is consistency, and some great ideas to get you started can be found at lifesavingfood.com. So I'm sharing this article from Dan Sanchez from the Foundation for Economic Education on a stress-free way to get children to do chores and become responsible. This strikes me as really solid advice. He talks about how character is a habit. He says, the first step to understand is that building good character starts with forming good habits. For character is habit long continued, as the ancient Greek author Plutarch wrote in his essay on the education of children. The second step is to adopt a constructive approach to your child's habit, habits rather, by turning your problem into a project. As author David Allen wrote, there are no problems, only projects. A problem is only a desired outcome undefined or lack of commitment to its resolution. And Dan Sanchez says, make it a group project. Involve your child not as a passive subject, but as an active participant in his or her own growing up. Now, he says, that's what I did when I set out to help my nine-year-old daughter develop good chore habits. I got her buy-in and input and made it a collaborative, even fun daddy-daughter endeavor. The first step in the project is to decide which regular practice you want to make habitual. For us, it was taking care of the dishes every night. Now, this may seem unambitious, but many habit researchers and coaches have shown that small habit goals are more effective than big ones because what matters most is maintaining the streak. Difficult daily minimums make breaking the streak highly likely, which will derail the whole project. And going above and beyond the minimum is much more likely if the streak is maintained. This idea has been covered in the books Mini Habits, Tiny Habits, and Atomic Habits. Now he says, I made it even more doable by making the chore itself a teamwork task between us. I pre-rinsed dishes in the sink and then passed them to her to load in the dishwasher. Making something a family activity, at least at first, makes it less of a chore in the pejorative sense. The next step is to draw a finish line for yourself by coming up with a concretely defined target outcome. In the case of habit formation, the desired outcome is what habit researchers call automa, automa, <laughs> let's try this again, automaticity, which is defined by the APA Dictionary of Psychology as the quality of a behavior or mental process that can be carried out rapidly and without effort or explicit intention. In other words, an automatic process. Automaticity has been described by researchers as a plateau. Because forming a habit is an uphill climb, but once the habit is formed, the behavior becomes smooth and easy. For the participants of a 2009 study published in the European Journal of Social Psychology, 
the plateau of automaticity was reached after a behavior was repeated for an average of 66 days within a range of 18 to 254 days. So if you want to set a concrete goal of repeating the desired behavior a number of days somewhere around that average or within that range, he says, my daughter and I went with 66 days. We tracked our progress with a habit tracking app called Momentum. After we performed our daily chore, we marked that day green in the app, which made a satisfying chime sound that delighted my daughter. The app displays the length of the current streak. Especially as we approached the magic 66 number, she became extra invested in not breaking the streak. This habit-building strategy was famously used by Jerry Seinfeld. And as doing the dishes became more automatic, we tacked on extra tasks to do immediately afterward, including tidying her room and brushing our teeth. This strategy is called habit stacking. Now, because the daily task was so doable, we ended up reaching our goal without having to start over once. On day 66, my daughter was elated over the accomplishment, and she didn't ask to stop at 66. Automaticity was achieved. The habit was formed. Doing the dishes every night, as well as tidying her room and brushing her teeth, was just something we did. No fuss, no muss. The project was not only successful, he says it was voluntary, smooth, and even fun. And it didn't require any pestering, scolding, or squabbling. Now that those habits are fully formed, we are setting a new goal for ourselves, reading to her baby sister every night for 66 days straight. In this way, he says, my daughter and I are working together to build up her character, habit by habit, action by action, and this approach to character education, rather than putting us at odds with each other, is bringing us closer together. Kind of a cool approach, don't you think? I know Dan is actually working on, uh, I think part of that 66-day habit is he's he's writing a column, a personal essay, every day for 66 days straight. Now, if you're a person who dreads trying to sit and write, uh, you know, that's, that is no easy task. Even for a professional like Dan Sanchez, that's a pretty daunting task because he's not just, you know, jotting down a few poems for a haiku. Oh, yes, we'll just, you know, have a few quick lines and it's done. His essays are consistently just excellent, top-shelf stuff. So I'm anxious to continue following his daily essays, but I thought this one in particular made a lot of sense. Something I'm looking forward to incorporating in, uh, in my own family. All right, let's shift gears here. Are you feeling brave? If you're willing to face some daunting truths about who is so intent on controlling your thinking, I want you to check out an article that I've included in today's show notes. This is from Rebecca Strong. The Monopoly on Your Mind, Part 1, Consolidation Craze and Illusion of Choice. And the subtitle here says, Six companies control 90% of what you read, watch, and hear. Here's why that's dangerous. Now, she says, in a recent Twitter survey I conducted, nearly 90% of people rated their trust in mainstream media as either very low or low. And is it any surprise? Ever-mounting media consolidation has narrowed the perspectives the public is privy to. Ownership and funding of these corporations are riddled with conflicts of interest. Crucial stories keep suspiciously getting buried. And big tech companies are outright censoring and demonetizing independent outlets trying to break through the noise. The media is supposed to function as a power check and as a means of arming us with vital information for shaping the society we want to live in. It's never been a more important industry, and it's never been at more risk 
So she says, in this series, I'll tackle each factor threatening the media's ability to serve our democracy with input from journalists. So here's the summary. This is the too-long-didn't-read summary of what's covered in this article. As regulations around ownership have continued to loosen over the last 40 years, the media has become increasingly concentrated. And a major culprit is the Telecommunications Act signed by then-President Bill Clinton in 1996, which 72% of the public didn't even know about. And no one voted on. Today, Comcast, Disney, AT&T, Sony, Fox, and Paramount Global control 90% of what you read, watch, or listen to. These companies spend millions on lobbying each year to sway legislation in their favor. She also points out how local news is dying out, with more than 2,000 U.S. counties, 63.6%, now lacking a daily newspaper. Also, interlocking directorates, which describe situations in which a board member at a media company also sits on the board at other companies, also create conflicts of interest. Publicly traded American newspapers are interlocked by 1,276 connections to 530 organizations, including advertisers, financial institutions, tech firms, and government political entities. And these interlocks are only disclosed to readers about uh, half the time. She also points out more than 30% of editors report experiencing some form of pressure on the newsroom from their parent company or its board of directors. Pressured editors admit to taking a more relaxed approach in reporting practices when covering interlocked individuals or organizations in the news. And finally, half of investigative journalists say newsworthy stories often or sometimes go unreported because they could hurt the financial interests of their organization. And 61% believe corporate owners exert at least a fair amount of influence on decisions about which stories to cover. So that's the summary of this uh, Substack article by Rebecca Strong. I'm including this in the show notes today, asking you, take a closer look. Understand that, you know, as as much as you have this illusion that, well, I have, look at all the sources that I have to choose from. When you consider that the ownership of these sources is so highly concentrated that it really can be boiled down, 90% of the sources that we access for information are controlled by about six major companies. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that there's a smoke-filled room with a bunch of guys sitting around, okay, here's what the talking points are today. But as you may have noticed, uh, corporate control has definitely been weaponized. I think COVID laid laid to rest any, you know, tendencies we might have to dismiss that possibility. Jab or job, that ring a bell? It means you got to be more careful than ever what you choose to access to help form your worldview. This is the Brian Hyde show. This is the Brian Hyde show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I want to mention HSLAmmo.com, one of my great sponsors. There is a link in my show notes that will take you directly to their website. One of the great things about Ammo, well, one of two great things about Ammo. Number one, it's a great store of value. So if you have been thinking, well, you know, I, I noticed the purchasing power of my dollar is shrinking. I want to put it into something that isn't going to lose value. I know this sounds apocalyptic, but... 
If you invest in ammo, I can promise you it is something that will always have value because, and this is the second good thing about ammunition, ammunition is how you convert money into skill, specifically skill at arms. And I'm not, you know, trying to make any kind of dire prediction. You know, this is just, there is peace of mind in having skill at arms, knowing that in the worst case scenario, you can take care of your own security. And HSL Ammo puts out a wonderful product, high quality, new and remanufactured ammo. Please click on the link. Consider doing business with them. If you're in southern Utah, you can actually stop by and see them in person. All right, let's let's talk about uh, the next time you're standing in line, for instance, at some government office, the DMV, just, just for the sake of uh, illustrating this. The next time you're standing in line to pay for the privilege of using your own property, I'd like you to look around and just notice how much we are treated like cattle. Now, if you've been to the airport recently, you know this is this is also a good place to to have that sense. You know, if if the if the TSA wasn't if they didn't have such a a, a dour outlook on any expression of humor, uh, so many times when the lines are long and we're just kind of being herded back and forth through the little barriers, you know, I, I've been tempted to just start mooing or lowing like a cow because. That's what it feels like. We're just so many human cattle to be shuttled through the security checkpoint. I got a great article here from Dr. Robert Malone, which spells out how techno-fascism, techno-feudalism, and indentured servitude are being normalized. And I guess the point of view of uh, how we are seen as farm animals is really what he's getting at. He says, in case you haven't noticed, I've been in a bit of a funk lately. He says the interdependent trifecta of censorship, state and corporatist-sponsored corporatist propaganda, and the role of Davos man in the emerging New World Order have been weighing heavy on my mind. Or he says maybe it's just that I've been traveling too much and seen and heard too many things and been the recipient of chronic targeted defamation for too long. He says perhaps I'm just homesick for my quiet, centered life with my wife Jill, our horses and fruit trees and our modest Virginia farm or horticultural park, or all of the above. But he says, what's really been eating away at my soul, like some kind of dementor from J.K. Rowling's darkest imaginings, is that we have allowed the billionaires to take over our world, and we have yet to come to terms with the consequences. The party of Davos, with its public mask or public facing mask behind the benign name of the World Economic Forum, what are the practical consequences for both how ourselves and our children will live their lives? Now, Dr. Malone says this issue touches the deepest questions. What is the fundamental nature of man, good or evil? What is justice, the proper order and character of political structures as they relate to justice? And what are the characteristics of a just and ethical man? The deep stuff which Plato covers in the foundation stone of Western thought on politics, the Socratic dialogue published as The Republic. Although pre-Christian, published in 380 B.C., whether or not you've read the multi-volume work, your ideas of right and wrong are profoundly influenced by this ancient test, text. rather, And regardless of your personal opinion regarding the dialectic tension between Hobbes, solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short, and Rousseau, the Republic is the bedrock upon which Western political thought is often built. By way of contrast, the work of Confucius is often seen as the foundation for much of the Chinese-Asian culture, Zoroaster, in historic Persia, and the blend of the teachings of Gautama, Buddha, and the Hindu classification of Astika and Nastika schools of philosophy in India. 
Quoting from Robin Douglas, senior lecturer in political theory at King's College London. He's the author of Rousseau and Hobbes, Nature, Free Will, and the Passions. Quote, Rousseau thought that once human nature has been corrupted, the chances for redemption are vanishingly slight. In his own day, he held out little hope for the most advanced commercial states in Europe, and although he never witnessed the onset of industrial capitalism, it's safe to say that it would only have confirmed his worst fears about inequality. The sting in the tale of Rousseau's analysis is that even if Hobbes was wrong about human nature, modern society is Hobbesian to the core. There's now no turning back. This way of putting things adds a twist to the usual narrative where Hobbes is supposed to be the pessimist and Rousseau the optimist. Now, if that's true of their ideas of human nature, the opposite is so when it comes to their evaluation of modern politics. If you think modern life is characterized by self-interest and competition, then one response is to sit back and wonder at how such individualistic creatures ever managed to form peaceful societies. But if you think there's a better side to human nature that we're naturally good, then you're more likely to ask, where did it all go wrong? Hobbes saw societies divided by war and offered a road to peace. Rousseau saw societies divided by inequality and prophesied their downfall. End quote. Now, Dr. Malone says, look, from my personal point of view, whether aware or not, we seem to find ourselves at yet another fundamental crossroad in human history. He says, as I move back and forth in my daily life regarding this strange intersection of serving as one of the leaders of the resistance regarding current public health policies versus just trying to keep my farm financed and operating and my wife and life happy, he says, I often hear various versions of the sad words, I, feel, I really feel sorry for the young people and what they're going to have to deal with. I certainly would not want to have to raise a child at this point. So rephrasing, he says, this embodies a sense of impending failure of global and U.S. society to meet expectations for what Plato correctly identified as the highest priority for a human society, to provide for the biological survival and reproductive needs of its members. Now, he points out we also find ourselves inundated by opinions couched as legacy news media, controlled social media, and official opinion from what essentially are sophists, paid to serve the interests of the global oligarchy. Quoting from Peter Corning, the sophists were a group of itinerant teachers whose pupils included many of Athens' wealthy aristocrats who paid generously for being told what they wanted to hear. Among other things, the sophists taught the idea that all laws are merely social conventions and that each individual has the right to define for himself or herself what is right and wrong. For instance, the sophist Antiphon suggested that some laws may even require us to do what is unnatural, in other words, helping others. What is natural is to pursue your own self-interest. Sound familiar? Later, sophists went even further, arguing that all laws arise from a voluntary contract that can be changed or even subverted if desired. Since inequality is a basic law of nature, and we are inherently unequal, justice is whatever the strongest and most powerful are able to impose on others. Might makes right. Thus, the character Thrasymachus in the Republic claims justice is nothing more than the interest of the stronger. Now, Dr. Malone says, look, an outstanding example of sophistry is provided by the recent outrage on the part of the Twitterati and the legacy media darlings concerning the actions of Elon Musk and his comments or actions concerning Twitter and free speech. Now, remember, Dr. Malone was unapologetically deplatformed by Twitter last winter for posting, you know, a, a truth bomb that they disagreed with. 
Hamish McKenzie argues that the decentralized citizen journalism of Substack is one viable solution while simultaneously promoting pro-censorship COVID official party line apologist Dr. Eric Topol. Now, Dr. Malone says there have been many excellent videos and written essays covering the rampant absurdities being promoted by various elite, corrupt, self-serving establishment apologists concerning the need for more censorship on Twitter and other social media platforms in order to protect free speech. But he says, I really like the summary provided by Matt Welch in his essay, Gatekeepers Very Afraid That Elon Musk Will Remove the Gates from Twitter. And he leads with a quote from Max Boot, a sophist who writes for the Jeff Bezos-owned Washington Post. I am frightened by the impact on society and politics if Elon Musk acquires Twitter. He seems to believe that on social media, anything goes. For democracy to survive, we need more content moderation, not less. Now, Dr. Malone says, look, is this, is this really the dawning of a new age, or is this just another version of the ancient tensions between autocracy and totalitarianism? Plato's benevolent dictatorship by wise and disinterested philosopher kings and the dwindling few who still believe in the American Enlightenment principles embodied in the writings and thought of Thomas Jefferson, John Adams, Benjamin Franklin, and James Madison. He has a lot more that he covers in this essay, which I'm unfortunately not going to have time to cover, but I'll end with this note from him. He says, wake up. We are being led down a very dangerous road by hyper-wealthy who have neither respect nor empathy for you or I as individuals. This is the face of evil. He says, this is the dementor that is sucking at my soul. If you are with the forces of good, he says, please help me. Please help humanity. Please help our children stand up. It is time to act or forever hold your peace. He really goes into some great detail on some stuff here that I won't have time to cover. I'll just tell you, it is worth your time. Again, that's Dr. Robert Malone. Check it out in my show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. This is The Brian Hyde Show.